Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and, and welcome try. to Call to Action The go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term band wagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Richard Huntington, a high-octane brand strategist with nearly 30 years' experience in advertising, Richard is Chairman, Chief Strategy Officer and part of the furniture at Saatchi & Saatchi. But look under the bonnet and you'll see the modified engine of a planner. At Saatchi, he has worked on clients including T-Mobile, the Labour Party, Marie Curie and HSBC, while previously he worked on Sky, where he helped launch Sky Plus back in 2003. The most quotable person in brand strategy, says Simon Manchip. He believes in strong opinions, lightly held, runs a hugely influential advertising blog, Ad Literate, and heads the growing queue of people in love with Andy Nairn. Richard says no commercial problem is unsolvable with enough creativity imagination and intelligence welcome to the show richard giles thank you thank you for that introduction right seven quick fires yes mac or pc always mac clear or clever clear 1984 or animal farm i'm gonna say animal farm right singing one now tenor or bass bass ralph fines or mark rylance Wow, I wonder where that's come from. Uh, I think Mark Rylance, particularly as a big friendly giant. Yeah, I adore Mark Rylance. Sir Mark Rylance, that should be actually. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Two more. Be interesting or be right. Well, you know that's, that's always be interesting in my book. And then finally, Andy Warhol or Andy Nairn? Andy Nairn? Like, <laughs> I, he's who I want to be when I grow up. He's like, uh, yeah. There's, we are we are founder members of the Andy Nen Appreciation Society. Amazing. Well, Richard, uh, thank you so much for joining us, mate. Not at all. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, Giles. Uh, so I think, as you know, to kick things off, we like to celebrate the sometimes linear, often not so linear route that guests take to get where they are now. So to just give us a bit of context, can you tell us what was your first ever job and then what was your first proper marketing job? Yeah, my, my my first job, I guess, was I was working in a nursery, not a children's nursery, a plant nursery, plumbing in an irrigation system uh, between my O-levels, as was, uh, and A-levels, uh, earning, I think, the minimum agricultural wage in 1986, which was 90p an hour, less 30p board and lodging. And I was working for my parents who had, they gave up their careers in the early 80s uh, and set out on their own. And so I, I worked... I guess I had the huge privilege, and I recognise my privilege of uh, of of working for and with them in a number of roles, like lots of retail jobs I did for them. Even worked as a draftsman for my mum. Uh, so, so that was sort of my first introduction, gentle introduction to the world of paid employment. And then, and then, how did that lead to uh, to uh, what we like to say proper 
marketing a proper gig. job yeah yeah well i i um i don't know i just slowly got interested in in advertising it wasn't it wasn't a, an overnight conversion of course you know literally nobody grows up saying you know mommy and daddy one day i see <laughs> i think i'm going to go into advertising particularly if you grew up sort of in in a sort of uh, grew up in r- rural Somerset and Devon, I was farmer's son. Uh, it's, it was completely outside our our sort of world uh, in, in terms of the sort of jobs you'd do. Uh, and it sort of it started to dawn on me that it might be an interesting idea. And I I sailed into the milk round process th- thinking I'd get my my first job in advertising. And uh, it was a really big lesson. I got lots of first. Uh, I got through to first interview. Lots of places. So good on paper shit on grass because um <laughs> because i got no literally no no second interviews just the first interview and 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 that was it and and actually you know i've got so many rejection letters back in, in 1989 from agencies i then went on to 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 work for like like abbott mead i've got a rejection letter from the legendary john Steele when he was at bmp um from Scylla Snowball when she was at Ogilvy and, of course, uh, uh, from Saatchi and Saatchi, wishing me all the best with my career. Uh, let that be, a, uh, hopefully, a lesson to everybody uh, trying to get into this strange industry. Uh, I wonder where Len Barkey is now because uh, <laughs> I'm the CSO of that agency. Anyway, um, and uh, so I sort of I, I, I left university sort of licking my wounds a little bit and wondering you know, you know, whether I would, where I could really cut it, to be honest. And then in the good old days, I want to take you back there when on, in The Guardian on a Monday, there was a thing called Media Guardian and uh, it had media jobs and they were beautiful. I mean, many of them were in telesales, I know, but it was a beautiful thing wandering through Media Guardian on a Monday. And I spotted an ad in about October 1989 that said, in the year 2000, 90% of marketing will be direct marketing. Uh, and I applied to that agency, it's now defunct, it's called DDM Advertising, Direct Marketing Agency on Westbourne Terrace uh, near Paddington. And uh, and I got my first, I think Neil Hannon from uh, Divine Comedy called it poorly paid job in advertising. But that was my first <laughs> poorly paid job in advertising. Wow, did you enjoy it? Yeah, I did, I really enjoyed it. As an account handler, that's a different story, or oh, it's the same story in fact. And I think so many of your guests who, who do what I do started in account handling and 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 I think we all, to a person, end up saying that we were found out. You know, that's literally. I, I'm a planner because I couldn't cut it as an account handler. Uh, and uh, but but I I yeah I loved it. I loved. Look, I I grew up in Devon and Somerset. The the minute I could get out of those places and get to London, which is where I wanted to be, the, it, you know, I was never going back. Uh, I was introduced to the heady world of advertising, sort of, it's kind of direct marketing. But in the early 90s, direct marketing had got a new swagger to it. But uh, I knew I wasn't quite where I really wanted to be. I'd had this sort of, the, the smell of places like Abbott Mead when it was in old Marylebone Road and it's famous uh, building. I, I've been to CDP when it was on the Euston Road. You know, that's the that's where CDP had happened in the 60s. Yeah, I've been to BMP, uh, which still is down uh, in Paddington. Like, and I, there was a different smell. I, I, I think I wrote about this a little bit recently in campaign about my first love affair being uh, with agencies, all of them. And and I, I knew that there was something that's something I was hankering after. And one of the things I've always said about getting into the business is start anywhere, anywhere, but don't get stuck somewhere 
you don't want to be. And uh, and, and after sort of, well, after being legendarily poor at account handling, I managed to wangle myself to go to learn to do planning at Abbot Mead in 90, about 93, I think it was, uh, which was just the biggest gift anybody could ever have given me. Uh, and, and I really didn't look back the minute as I was inside that place, I locked the doors and refused to leave. Amazing. Well, you, you did recently write then a, a love letter to the agency. That love that you refer to, is that something that grew over time or was that fairly immediate then? No, I, I, I you know, and it's difficult for me to, to separate, to separate that, that sort of sense of what advertising felt like in the, in the nineties from how I feel about it now. Like it, it's, uh, it's all one thing to me. And uh, what I really wanted to say in that piece, you know, after a year of lockdown and not being in our agencies and uh, was that it, lots of people had t- started talking about the return to the office. When we go back to the office, going back to the office. And I, and I, and I didn't want to go back to an office. Don't want to go back to office. I did some work, you know, I went, I went in to, to our place in Chancery Lane in the autumn and, and, I, and I wasn't going into the agency. I was going to, into an office, just an office. Uh, and I wanted to make the, this distinction between offices as places of work and agencies as sort of these mercurial, amazing environments where where we don't just make great work. And and to be honest, we are all making great work by hook or by crook right at the moment. But but they are we we also create places and spaces where that play, that work can happen, where that work can be sold, where that work can be nurtured, and where the relationships that you need to create it could be looked after and in so many ways I do feel a little bit like yeah we can do this but but I'm feeling a little bit like you know when the roadrunner runs off the edge of a cliff but keeps running for a bit that's been me for the last year uh but if I don't get back inside what, what I feel it back inside the agency ad agency environment soon I'll, I'll plummet to the ground and be dashed into a million pieces <laughs> I, I I really believe in in the agency as as a place as an environment and I and I really and I really miss it I really miss it yeah I, I to be honest I'm that metaphor right alongside you off that cliff I've had two conversations in the last week one with Ryan Woolman in Dr Draper in Melbourne and then earlier today with with Simon Dent of Dark Horses about how much we're all pining to be back in agencies and I like that distinction too about it's not an office it's an agency well I said in the piece you know like we, we don't have office parties I, I've what I've seen those like on the telly and stuff uh, you know we have agency agency parties aren't office they're totally different and you know like uh, there's just something I don't want okay maybe I'm making special pleading for advertising agencies it's just it's just my thing I'm sorry it's just my thing that's a good thing. No, it's a good thing. I think lots of people share that. Share that one. And so, do you think then the pandemic will will be the end of of, of agencies as we know it, or, or just a way of kind of evolving? Let's hope it's the latter. Anyway, we've learned is that we can do, which is quite extraordinary, frankly. We can do this job remotely. I I, I don't think any of us might have predicted that, and and we can do it to a very high uh, degree of competence. If you look at what people are capable of producing. Uh, at the moment, today we're shooting uh, in uh, an ad in Kiev, but but uh, the agency team is in is in London, uh, shooting that remotely. Uh, so so it, like we've figured this out, but it isn't the same. It, you know, the process of building and nurturing ideas isn't the same. We've got we've got a little mantra at the moment. We're trying to work through how this works, but uh, it's um, 
it's about you know some of the work you do is heads down work you could be anywhere for that some of the work you do uh, is heads up work where you're sort of listening and, and taking stuff in that could be hybrid uh, and some of the work that we do in fact quite a lot of it and the important stuff is heads together work and to be honest don't we need to be in close prox in shouting distance of each other i think that this this crisis has convinced me of the fact that we can do this but it's better when we do it together agreed totally agreed i was going to lead you into just digging into uh, briefs the art of briefing but to be honest this this kind of might work as as a sidestep because presumably and i know that that you quite rightly understand and talk about the significance of the brief presumably this pandemic has represented a, a whole new challenge for the art of briefing or the process of briefing yeah i mean i i find it incredible created briefing last night and uh, and it was super weird and, and remember also now we have all of us have been people who've enjoyed our have joined our agencies since the beginning of the crisis creative teams have joined our agencies you're briefing people you've never met and and you know so so much of good briefing in a sense is understanding the sensibilities and approaches of different creative talents and i i find that incredibly difficult to navigate you know and it, some things are possible just shouting over zoom but but other things it, I, I think it does suffer it doesn't mean to say we can't do this but it's i, I likened it the other day is like we can it's like building a, a brick wall it's but it, without any um, mortar so you can build the wall but it's not the same and i'm not sure how robust it is ultimately yeah well a lovely quote of yours is is that i'm like gandalf i can take creatives to the edge of the shire but then you're on your own so i suppose at the moment you're I don't know if we if we push the message for you're le- leading a band of hobbits, but you've yeah. never met them. <laughs> never met them. And they go, right, that's me done. Off you yeah. go. Uh, I, and I should just qualify. I mean, that that's about I think the relationship also between strategy and creative. Like I uh, I recognise that my creativity is derivative. I'm really good at sort of saying oh, it could be a bit like this, or it could be a bit that, a bit like that. You know, do you remember the work that so and so did? Or like like it's what i what i know i need and and just as i know i'm no account handler that was proved to me early in my career i also don't have any pretensions to be a creative because what i know i need is that insane uh, magic that then happens when i say x and and a, and a team creative director ecd whatever comes back and says why like, like it's 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 the stuff that you know that your brief led to, but you couldn't possibly have have predicted when you wrote it, when you were writing your little creative starters. It it, it transcends all of that, and 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 that, and that's that's what I sort of mean mean by the Gandalf thing. I can show you the way, but but honestly, I'm looking forward to every time, looking forward to the journey. Somebody goes on because it, it, I can't get there myself. So without them, you're you're just an old guy with a stick. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> In so many ways, guys. <laughs> in so many ways. I've seen your talk. Um, <laughs> oh, no, yes. <laughs> but you're right, though. I mean, the funny, well, say funny, the thing about Bruce is, I mean, you have to be so wary of absolutes in this industry, as you'll know, you know, better than I do. But uh, they do they do increase the odds of, of effectiveness, don't they? They incre- increase the odds. You can, you can produce, you know, award-winning, fantastically effective work from a shit brief, but a, a, a great brief is only going to increase those odds. Yeah, I mean, the, the APG used to do this brilliant role reversal course years ago, and they had they, the, the central lesson you learned as a planner was they gave you a brief with no brief, 
and then you give you they gave you a shit brief and then they gave you a good brief to work on it in a sense as a role reversed as a creative uh, and what you learned was uh, there's nothing better than a great brief but no brief is better than a bad brief. And I think such an important lesson to learn early in your career as a planner is, uh, is, is, is you have to have to add value. And I think that that's true of creative briefs. It's also true of planning. We've got to recognize that uh, amazingly effective work was produced uh, before us and without us. So it's only if we are able to add value that we have any value. So can we quickly touch on how you'd write a brief that you love? What's the importance of a, of a brief, whether it's the structure or or its articulation? I wonder how 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 articulate I can actually be. I mean, the first thing I say it's never about the structure. It's I think I think maybe Zoe mentioned this in her, in her podcast with you. It's about the software. It's always about the software. It's what you put in. You, you know, otherwise writing a brief is is like filling out a credit card application form. There's a what hugely discredited human being, but there's a wonderful uh, Eric Gill quote where he said, first I, first I think my think, then I draw my think. And, and I think that's what planners need to do with briefs is first think your think, then go write your think. I can't, I'm not sure I can be much more helpful than that. Beyond the fact that when I first became a head of planning, I was handed the unenviable task at an agency like HHCL, which is insanely good and full of insanely good people uh, and t- told, approve the briefs. And I go, ah, like I'm woefully uh, unable to do this. And literally, I'm head of planning of a group of planners who all think basically and probably were better than I am. Uh, and so all, I decided all I could ever do was look at a brief and go, I don't know if this is right, but I can tell you if I think it's interesting. Uh, so and that's my point. You asked right at the beginning, interesting versus right. That's sort of what I mean. You know, it's the only thing I can really cling on to in life, in my professional life, is um, I can never tell you whether anything is right but I, ca- I can tell you if I think it's interesting and I have a basic belief that hell if you know if I'm interested maybe I get get a creative team interested if they are interested maybe they could get a creative director interested and then maybe we could get some consumers interested you, you like it there's a there's a knock-on effect but it sort of does start from can I come up with anything interesting can I can I talk about the world or the brand or the category in a in a way that nobody's ever talked about it before I mean, that's one of the reasons I, I know I wang on about it ad nauseum. But why well, I still talk about the work I did on, on Direct Line, because it, because I think it was literally a way of shaking the Etch-A-Sketch and saying, I'm going to talk about insurance in a fundamentally different way to anything that anybody's ever said before. It's not a bad start point. I get that, actually. So so is it kind of like interesting is, is becomes like the hook then? Obviously, everything I say, nobody should should nobody should ever quote and nobody should take as as gospel like of course i don't i don't purely mean you you shouldn't be right you know uh but but i kind of have a belief that if it's interesting to consumers it probably will end up being right and if it's not right then you'll probably find out it's shit early enough in the process but for god's sake start with something that's you find interesting as opposed to spending your entire time desperately trying to produce something right because i think i can make interesting right but not right interesting if that makes any sense whatsoever funny enough we've 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 only i suppose fairly recently given up the um several year task of creating a definitive brief template because i've just given up i don't think it can be yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. and then in fact we 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 frequently or increasingly refer to bbh and jwt's both their templates from i think one of them is at least the 60s if not prior and jwt's i believe is, is mid 70s because it it's you know it's it's good enough like we can't improve that 
Well, I, I think that that's, there's absolute truth in that. I, I don't think you necessarily get different results because you've got a different creative briefing template. I think it's one of the things that, that, that you know, newly made heads of planning or CSOs do to kind of pass the time. Uh, and I, I, I'm not sure, like I almost think, I used to believe, I don't, not sure I do any longer, but I used to believe in just having a naked brief, like write the brief you need to write to get the work you want, you want out. And I, I, I realize that that's not terribly helpful, particularly if you're, you're growing up in this industry. I do hear you on, I, I used to love BBH briefs where they were landscape and, uh, and they had a massive red box in the middle of it with, where you put the proposition. It was super clear what was important on that piece of paper. I think I think for me personally, the reason I, I like, especially the BBH one that we that we reference, is because uh, one or two of the lines, especially the one that forces you to make decisions and forces you into a, actually articulating a problem, is or describing the problem at least, is is what's the one most important thing that this should convey this piece of work, and that's that's kind of, I suppose, without wanting to beat up people who might write lazy briefs or you know, pretty poor briefs I, I i guess i've seen them as a vehicle to pass problems on to creative departments and not a means to get great effective work sometimes it's just a convenient way of passing a problem T- totally and and that's the problem we need to stare at not what what is the the briefing template yeah exactly you gave a an interview recently on google firestarters mm. and you mentioned your interest in the distinction between selling and salesmanship can you expand a bit on that and explain what you mean by that? Sort of. Uh, I wish I could expand. <laughs> if I could expand much more, I'd write a book about it. Um, <laughs> I, I actually, I, I think I, I wrote a piece that came out this week as well about about the about the lost art of salesmanship. It's just sort of responding to what Paul Felwick's written a lot about, both in the Anatomy of Humbug and his most recent book about the importance of you know, that, that we come from a tradition of. P.T. Barnum and uh, and showmanship and uh, you know what we call Sachi chutzpah you, you know that's our tradition it's not the spreadsheet or or, or, or activism and, and I suppose I, I I think that the art of, and it's I hate the fact that it's gendered but I can't find a better word at the moment but the act of salesmanship is everything it's it's uh, it's a process it's a it's a it's an art form it, it it's a whole journey you take somebody on, whereas I think in lots of ways selling is about has been reduced to find people showing uh, data signals that indicate they're interested and in market for a product I want to sell and then serve them the product in a straightforward, rational way. Uh, and I think that selling uh, salesmanship is uh, it, I mean, I know it, it's difficult to conjure this up without sort of feeling all a little bit de- doorstop salesman. Although, let's face it, David Ogilvy uh, started as a Arga salesman. But it is a sort of, you know, uh, that it starts with good morning. Like, uh, you don't know me, but that, that's, yes. that, that's why I'm sort of trying to grasp or, or grapple with. And, and, I, and I haven't managed to fully articulate. And maybe, maybe it's bollocks. I will never be able to fully articulate. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's parallels with, I mean, like the IPA will talk about the logic and the magic side, the two different distinct sides of our industry. And maybe there's a bit more logic in the, in the selling side. As you said, it's about those data signals and rational processes, whereas salesmanship can be quite magical. And your example there with, with David Ogilvy is exactly that. It's that kind of flourish that comes with it. 
Yeah, and I think I think that the great art in our business is is what you do out of market. How on earth do you get people interested in what you've got to say as a brand when they're not in in market for a mobile phone contract or or for car insurance or you know anything that you broadband thing you might want to sell them ultimately how do you do you wait do you wait until they go uh, you know they signal to the world uh, that they're ready to buy or, or is there validity in spending time when people are out of market establishing saying hello and establishing the the the, the basis upon which people might then uh, move to purchase or certainly prefer you when they go into that sort of evaluation process I always also quite like the attention you might give to someone who will never be in your target segment. So it's quite a crude example, but say uh, Aston Martin, I can't afford an Aston Martin. And let's just assume, although I will dream that I'll never own one or be able to purchase one. But the fact I know Aston Martin and it has that kind of prestige and, and allure is surely one of the reasons why people who can afford it will want to buy one. Completely. And there's so many things that spin off my head. You know, you, you know clearly Elon Musk is minted because, uh, because the, the collapse in, in the cost of uh, batteries. Uh, and, uh, but, but really, his genius in lots of ways was sell electric cars by making rich people want them because then everybody will want them uh, rather than the, uh, you know, sort of strange little electric cars that, that everybody else is making that that makes me like that spins off there's also i mean you're an aston martin man for, for me I, i'm thinking a bit more about skoda but what one of the great things that, that fallon did in the uh with, with skoda was to was to diffuse the joke so that campaign it's a skoda honest was wasn't about selling skoda to skoda drivers it was diffusing the joke so that non-skoda drivers lightened the fuck up uh, and so uh i totally i mean i think there's a big di- conversation to be had it's start it is being had about the sheer power of wastage and after all you know isn't that what you know rory sutherland says a brilliant thing every five minutes but one of the things that so totally sticks with me is um is uh, advertising is expensive and difficult because if it wasn't expensive and difficult it wouldn't be advertising and, and i think what he what he means by that is is it's a sh- it's an overwhelming show of confidence and uh, in your own business product and future uh, to 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 go to all that effort uh, and, and and so i think i think that that whole that whole nexus of I, like we people talk about uh, hyper personalized advertising. I think I'm also really interested in hyper public advertising, uh, the way that advertising works because I've seen that uh, communication, but I also know that you've seen it, uh, and you know I've seen it. Like there's something, I think that probably boils down to something around social proof, uh, and you know the herd effect that Mark talks about, but but it, but it, it, there's it's not a purely one-to-one that's important but it's not a purely one-to-one endeavor this selling thing no i totally agree i I, am my favorite example actually which is one of rory's about hyper public versus hyper personalized is when we get married we say our vows in public spaces often in front of all of our friends and families we don't go door to door (laughs) (laughs) and it's exactly that 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 kind of signaling that you're referring to is exactly right and it's so um and it is so significant yeah 
I'm going to, I'm just going to read something actually that you might, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on it because it's, it's, it's a selling technique from IT. And this is, I've nicked this already for a talk that I did a couple of weeks ago, which is I've recently heard about someone from the IT industry who was asked to sit in on several ad agency presentations. He thought they were brilliant. The slides, the stagecraft, the quality of the argument was higher than anything he'd seen in his own industry. But he added, you ad guys all make a terrible basic mistake. You sold positives. In IT, only in the direst cases would you ever sell a solution by detailing the benefits. We sell on fear. If you don't buy this solution, the following bad things will happen. I mean, it does. It does I've got closer and closer to consultancies uh, recently working, you know, working really closely with Sapient because uh, they're part of our group. And, and I do. And it's interesting because when they pitch, that essentially what they're saying is 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 spend this amount of money and make this amount of money. There's a certainty to what consultancies are able to do. Whereas we sort of go, do this and hopefully something amazing will happen. Because the, the reality is I can't tell you at that point whether you're going to get, I believe in the work and I probably uh, uh, spent some time evaluating the work, but I can't tell you whether you're going to have a, a reasonable success with that work or, or you're going to have something transcendent like a a, a, a Cadbury's gorilla or a, or an idea that a one in 10,000 idea that completely rewires how a category sold. And, uh, and so, but, but I think that's honestly, I'm bored of, I'm bored of um, craving the lives of uh, other professional services uh, businesses. I do think there's a little bit in it. I, 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 I sometimes talk to, to clients when doing sort of creative training or how to respond to creative work. And I do think we could be better at spelling out the opportunity cost of not backing an idea. And, 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 and I mentioned it a little bit before, but, but I think imagine you were the client that had done the absolutely eminently sensible thing, which was to turn down the creative idea of having a gangland fixer as a brand spokesperson for an insurance company. Um, and I think, you know, there'd be no, there'd be, Nobody would would have a problem with you doing that. It's an eminently sensible thing to do. This is a clinically insane act, and yet in that moment you just waved goodbye to to millions and millions of pounds of of commercial effect that can't, I can't predict in that moment. But I think that that there is a that I'd say there's it's more like there's a downside of not picking the brilliant ideas because you cost in that moment you cost your organisation untold amounts of value. And we're not good enough at spelling that out, that the really risky thing is not doing the risky thing. Totally agree. I'm wary of running out of time before our listener questions and our, our poses to close. But before we move there, um, I loved your recent blog post, Singing Eats Strategy for Breakfast. And you say, my singing story is the single most influential thing I have ever done. But I couldn't find what your singing story was. And I'm dying to know it. Would you, would you kindly share? Yeah, hopefully, hopefully I can I can do this not you know not the extended version uh, because it is quite important to me. I can't sing. I've never been able to sing. I don't think I can sing. I have this horrible, always this horrible thing of I I, I love music, but I can't make the sound that comes out of my mouth, whether I'm whistling, humming, or singing, sound like what's going in to my ears. And and so I've written myself out of of singing as so many people have. And then I trucked up at the Do Lectures, uh, David Hyatt's uh, thing in West Wales after a really 
bad beginning of 2018. I was a bit low ebb and, and I just wanted brain food and stimulation and warmth and, and vulnerability and all those amazing things. And I, and I signed up in an act of sort of almost like, fuck it. Uh, what's the worst can happen to a singing workshop with an amazing vocal leader called uh, James Sills. Uh, and I did this workshop and uh, at the end of it, we'd, as a choir, we'd created a piece of music, sung a piece of music that didn't sound, it sounded like music. Like I, I couldn't understand how that could happen. And I, and I, and I loved it. And I love loads of things about it. I love the fact that, you know, you ask tenor or bass, that's a massive thing for me because because when I went into that choir environment, I thought, well, I'm not a blokey bloke. I'm, you know, not I'm not alpha male. I, I, I'm obviously going to be a tenor, and I'm not. I just happen to have a voice that's that's a bass, and 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 it, and uh, and it was really interesting, kind of a discovery about my masculinity, and and it was also really interesting to start to, to, to as a as a man to to contribute your voice, to contribute yourself in a way that's entirely submissive and and about contributing to the whole and where where your voice is in, is important and valued because as a as a man you can make sounds that, that that women can't make and vice versa so i loved all of that and i came you know running back from the do lectures in a really irritating way and i, and I told my wife and she said yeah yeah they played her the, the recording and she went that actually does sound like music and so um i made her join we went off joined the choir i made her to join the choir went told my mum about it. My mum had been told when she was 16, you can't sing. There's no way you can sing. You sound awful. She stopped singing. Uh, she joined the choir. My wife's mum joined the choir. And my brother joined it. Like, it had this ripple effect. So that's what I mean by it. it's probably the single most influential thing I've ever done. But, but, but I, uh, and I'm not saying go join a choir, although I am saying go join a choir. Yeah. <laughs> because, because everybody can sing. It's the most amazing experience and and the reality is if you don't go to the gym for 30 years you won't be that fit and if you don't sing which you haven't done since you were seven it's not surprising that you you you, you're not amazing at it you will be you have a voice go go find it because for one thing i'm just gonna wrap up the rant there's so much (laughs) more i can say about this but for one thing it's the most if you work in an industry like ours which we say is about teamwork but in the final instance it's about you standing up and performing and showing the world that you're individually brilliant, you're part of a team, you contribute to a solution, you're individually brilliant. It is so lovely to be in an environment where, where it's not about you. It's, it, you. Nobody can actually hear the thing that you're adding into the 40 voices. And to subsume yourself into the collective is, 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 is such bliss uh, if you work in an industry like ours. End of rant. Yeah, <laughs> that was but wonderful. Join the choir, Giles. Join the yeah. choir. Yeah, oh, I don't and know, don't, mate. And don't have singing lessons, by the way. That's my tip. Don't have singing lessons. Join the choir first. Then, if you want, have singing lessons. It's a mistake lots of people make. You just go and sit and mouth along if you have to. Uh, it, that's how you'll. That's how you'll pick it up. Oh, I'm pleased I asked. That was awesome. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> really cool. And so, presumably, you do, you still do this. I mean, this was only three years ago, so you must. Have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I joined a I joined a community choir, and it, it, you know, there's a community choir near you. There aren't auditions for community choirs. You rock up. People really want you. They really want your voice. They really want you to be part of that family. Um, I I stayed in contact with this amazing guy, James Sills. Had him 
we do a thing now in lockdown called Saatchi Sing, where where we get together and we sing it, but it's, but we learn a song. We you know we 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 do it on Zoom. It's amazing on Zoom because nobody can hear you. But we 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 put something together and we 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 sort of perform it. I sort of been doing that because I think it's an amazing way to help keep our cultures together. I can't wait to do it live. And then uh, you know. It's been weird, but 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 I, my choir at the moment runs on on Zoom. Uh, it's not amazing to do it that way, but it's interesting, uh, and it's one of those many many things that we've figured out how to do over the last year. It just about works. So, so and I want to start a hashtag called Strategists That Sing because I keep finding them like in little corners. Nobody admits to this, by the way. You know, you should you should recruit. I think the other thing, oh, sorry, but I'm, I'm a big fan of which one of the things I love is, is when you learn a song, you you develop a new interest in it or a new respect for it. So lots of songs I kind of like I, I we, we learned a medley from West Side Story. I just think oh, West Side Story is such lame music. <laughs> you know, if you get in, I just doing Les Miserables, right? You know, you get into that uh, and you start, you start to learn it. You start to love music and it it, it rediscovers music that you don't like or thinks cliched or you know just surrounds you in a sort of music ersatz way i don't know it's a it's a really interesting journey i really will stop there <laughs> now that's interesting that's really interesting especially for, especially finding music that, that you know previously you may not have appreciated in the same way maybe maybe i don't know maybe indulging in it from a different different angle different viewpoint and actually um being responsible for it gives you a different different view yeah and it's interesting how it can be so poignant. I mean, uh, we did, uh, we managed to sneak in a concert during lockdown, that brief window we had in December. And we sang uh, Merry Christmas, War is Over by John Lennon and Yoko Ono, uh, which, I, which I love, you know. But I, 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 str- I really fucking struggled to sing it because, it, it, you know, when you're t- talking about next year and you're hoping it's a good one without any f- fear, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's really weird the way that, that songs can bring new emotion and new meaning. Uh, um, I don't know if there's a broader lesson for what we do in our day jobs, but um, uh, I, I really recommend it. Have you got a favourite song to sing? I, well, I, I, I said the very first Christmas, I uh, I had this thing where I wanted to sing to my family, uh, and I sang, I learnt and sang Edelweiss from um, Sound of Music. Uh, Christopher Plummer, who sang it in the original film, died recently, and. Um, and uh, it's a lovely, it's a lovely song to sing for, for, as a sort of bass or a baritone. Uh, so I really like that. But at the moment, I am bloody loving. Can can you hear the people? Anyway, I won't pretend like <laughs> they're, they're miserable. Like, you know, they're, they're, particularly in a you know in a in a world right now. Maybe we'll get onto this uh, if we have any more time. Where you know our rights are being ripped away from us. Where protest is being stamped on. Uh, uh, where we witness scenes where where women, you know, honouring women honouring somebody going about her business, uh, you, you know, get get uh, get brutalised by the police. Where people protesting about the the attempt to stop us protesting get discriminated against and brutalised. Uh, uh, there's a, something about singing uh, the medley from May Lady Miserable. I think you'll find it strangely political all of a sudden. Yeah. Sorry, Giles. <laughs> There's not enough politics in court action, I, I, I've just got to say. <laughs> Time. Right, I'm going to go to listener questions then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, as is talking about singing with with Richard. Joe says, you mentioned in your brilliant Seven Deadly Sins of Planning talk that gluttony in planning comes from overindulging in our own echo chamber. What advice can you give to planners on how to break out of this chamber? Break out of this chamber. I mean, you, you've said on a number of occasions, Charles, you wish that there was an algorithm for randomness. And uh, and, 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 and I, I, Zoe had a very clear point of view about the user experience. But, uh, but I do think that, that, that is, it is beholden on us to, to try and get out of it. Uh, I, I would make a little stout defence of uh, strategy Twitter. I, I think it can be an amazing place. I, I heard a, a planner a little while ago he said to me, I just love this story, that whenever he, he went to an airport or a railway station on a journey, he'd buy the magazine he wanted to buy, then he'd buy a completely random magazine off, off the shelf uh, and, 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 and get stuck into it. Like, uh, and, and, I, and I think just... That's amazing. But, but it's such a good idea. Like, you know, it might be about, I don't know, show jumping or nursing or, you know, like uh, uh, angling. I don't know, something you don't do yourself or even appreciate. But that randomness... That I think, and you've talked about this also, an ability to empathise with the world, with, with the lives of people that you don't necessarily uh, share, I think is one of our key skills and, uh, and just exercising that muscle. And also, uh, you know, uh, it, it also tells you you're a planner, doesn't it? If you get really, really interested in some arcane like thing that you would never come across before, like singing, Giles. I love that. I'm going to start buying random magazines. Do that. Do that. Random magazines. Yeah. I think it sort of almost has to be like, I'm not sure you can do it on the internet. I think you almost have to be in that moment where you're going on a journey and and you're able to read cover to cover, like, you you know, a magazine dedicated to dog grooming or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. And then you're stuck with the magazine for that journey. I think the context. And then people look at you really oddly and go. Yeah. 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 You might find an ally. Another reader. <laughs> Not the planner doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're back to square one. Yeah. I was on a podcast a couple of years ago and I said something and someone really liked it and, and uh, posted it on, on LinkedIn recently. My mind has this habit of creating Venn diagrams to try and understand things. And I said something along the lines of a great account man, if you can picture two circles with a slight overlap and one what the client wants and the other is what the agency wants and it's kind of making sure that you you, you find that that ground and it's not about choosing one o- over the other it's, it's more about understanding the the significance of, of of empathy and making sure that if an agency agencies typically will be making recommendations but ultimately there is a whole process in itself of selling that into a to a client and making sure the client then wants it too. That's one of the essential arts of the account handler, and it, and it is about. And I mean, it sounds a little bit like make the make sure that what the client wants is what the agency wants to make. But I think you know, at its heart is a is great agency client relationships are built on a shared agenda where you're both. You may argue tooth and nail about how you get there, but you're both going in the same direction. I think the other thing that agencies that people don't always really understand properly is the journey that a client then has to go on internally. And, and to make the, the most um, challenging work, uh, the, the real job isn't us recommending it, it's, it's the client then taking it through their organization intact, 
uh, and with some faith. Yeah, yeah, and there's a whole chain, isn't there, that sometimes you, you can you can forget. I don't think we always empathise, and, and of course, great great account handlers do understand those steps and 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 what you need to to provide and, and, and the reassurance you need to provide to get there because because in the final instance it's hard to it's hard to bully anybody into doing something. Um, and actually I think one of the great advantages or great values um, planners have in that process is that because we're known to persuade and not sell, we can be super useful in, in sometimes building some of the furniture around an idea that helps the client take it through uh, you know, the choppy waters internally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really nice way to put it. The final part then of our interview is the four pertinent poses, Richard. Uh, starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? Yeah, I, so so I think it's probably going to boil down to something like, you're an introvert, Richard, get over it. Because I think for, for such a long time, I tried to pretend I was an extrovert in an extrovert's business. Um, and And I'm not. And it's taken me a long time to, to be able to look my Myers-Briggs in the face uh, and realise who I am and what I am and be, uh, and, and, and be comfortable with that and realise what a lot, of things I'm, a lot of things I'm doing are coping, really good coping. I mean, like not, not detrimental to my, me and my mental health, like good, good ways of showing up in the world as an introvert. Um, but but I, I wish I'd known that... Uh, I wish I'd understood that about myself earlier. Yeah. Do you think you could have understood that about yourself earlier? I think in so many ways, I, it's not who I wanted to be. It's not who I had in my mind's eye. And it's not what I thought about the, the business, to be honest. I, I wanted, I liked all that. As I've called it, the showmanship. I mean, I think, you know, I, I yeah, I've developed a, a way of engaging uh, in performance and showmanship, which is which is a te- is a hundred percent an introvert's way of doing it. And if anybody, like I've got so many tools and, and tips and 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 um, things to say about about navigating this world, because we we are up against a whole lot of extroverts who've built a business that works for them. Yeah, awesome. I might get you to share some of that. Uh, number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Yeah, I think um, I'm going to say lack of care. Um, I wrote something I think came out yesterday um, about uh, about too many people in advertising don't care about advertising because why would you? It's such a trivial kind of disposable thing. It's not it's not serious. It's it's not you know what your parents thought was a proper career. It's it's not what many of your mates thinks are a proper career. And and so I I called it the cultural cringe that in advertising where you know half the people want to be you know uh social activists and half the people want to be um management consultants and and i think the problem with that is if you've got any industry where people don't truly care about what they do and the power of what they do it goes wrong and what i witness about advertising is it doesn't really go wrong because we're an evil bunch of people you know deliberately trying to uh um do harm in the world it goes wrong because not enough people care about what they're doing and the impact it has you know if we have if we've made work for decades that's excluded huge swathes of our population and 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 our communities and our society uh, we never set out to do that but it's what we did Uh, so with the sole exception of people who who are selling vaping products right now who 
clearly think that doing harm is a good idea. Uh, I, I think it, it's, it's about uh, we need to care more about what it is we do and the consequences of what we do. Doesn't mean to say um, you know you're, you you do need to find your sort of moral compass through uh, uh, an industry which is essentially you know part of a capitalist system. But I do think it's possible to care about what you make and the impact it has. And I think a lack of care is is the one thing I'd love to banish. Mm, well said. Well said. Um, number three, any books that you can recommend to our listeners? Oh, see now this is a we're now going to do a singing rant, but not about singing. Um, so I, I think if I give you four, maybe you, you won't read any of them. Uh, so I'm going to give, suggest one single book and maybe people will go, OK, fuck it. I'll, I'll go and see what that's all about. So you may hate this, but it's Waterlogged by Roger Deakin. Roger Deakin was an environmentalist, um, a nature writer, but also pretty much the founder of wild swimming movement in the UK. And in, in, in 1997, he set off across Britain, uh, essentially swam his way. Uh, it literally, if there's anything wet, Roger got his uh, uh, swimming trunks out of the boot of his Volvo and went and swam in it. And um, uh, and I think so much the the, the sort of godfather of, of wild swimming, which is becoming increasingly popular, it's about us taking back our, our rivers uh, and uh, it's a book which has got this unique combination for me of it's a challenge, like a love. He set out on this challenge. Uh, uh, he, it, it's, he, it's about um, history and, and actually how we, you know, swimming in this country was wild swimming in the way that, that, you know, I went to Canada a couple of years ago. There's wild swimming everywhere in Canada. Like we've lost we've lost this part of our culture. It's um, he's one of the finest, most beautiful nature writers uh, he he brings this love of British countryside uh, onto the page, and there's there's a good dose of politics because at the heart of this is the fact that um, you have no rights of access to your rivers except uh, if they are navigable, um, and uh, and the very fact that it is possible for somebody to own a river, which is basically water that comes from the sky and goes to the sea, but people. I think they own it. I think is one of the greatest anathemas in, in, you know, and, and I think dispelling that is a heart of the, the whole land reform movement. Uh, I'm sorry because that that's uh, that's me going off on one, but uh, all I really mean is uh, that's a beautiful book. I take you to a million places, and I really would love uh, you'd go away. It's my blankie, basically. If my life is good, bad, or indifferent, I always turn to Roger Deakin amazing no I love that I, to be honest I'd never even considered it like that way I hadn't, I'd never like had it framed to me that way about the ownership of the water but you're absolutely right and it's called waterlogged it's called waterlog lovely lovely pun play on words at uh, waterlog but yeah I mean uh, there's been a massive victory recently in um, the river wharf in Ilkley uh, where it's the first uh, stretch of river in the United Kingdom kingdom which has been designated as uh, as official bathing water and therefore has to be in the way that our beaches are all uh, have to be clean this piece of water has to be clean and uh, you know uh, we need to get back to the to a culture in which uh, uh, particularly with the um, experience of lockdown last year of where where our rivers are our river cue lots of anglers being very upset <laughs> yeah that's true the water quality that's good for swimmers is good for trout. That's all I'd say. Ah, right. There you go. You've already been. You've already thought of the defence. Love it. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, but I, what I'm really saying there is, uh, is if go, go just like I like the randomness. I, I mean, wild swimming's now become part of my thing, but but uh, but I love just diving into weird, unusual places. And 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 uh, there's a, a thing my wife introduced me to, which is called um, sort of book archaeology, which is you read a book and that book, like I read Waterlogged, and then I read Tark of the Otter. Um, because, because a book will feed you more books and then you can go on this like long journey maybe you should just spend a year where all you do is read things that a previous book suggests you you read and you go back in time necessarily through this archaeology of, of writing anyway yeah I love that idea and then so number four we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow that honor uh, to our guest who has to give their reason why so would you kindly dedicate this episode yeah, I'd love to dedicate this episode to a woman called Marie Benton. Um, she's the um, CEO and founder of an organization called, wait for it, Choir With No Name. So it's about singing. Um, Choir With No Name is, is, it, it operates in four cities in Britain, and it's uh, the choirs for people experiencing homelessness and, and, and marginalization. And they do an extraordinary, she's done an extraordinary thing. I mean, because it's kind of, weird the the thing i'm going to do in the world of homelessness and, and marginalization is have people sing together and yet the evidence suggests that coming together that sense of family being a singer and not marked by your life experience uh is transformative for people and uh, i i do anything i can at the moment to point a little light on what uh, Marie has done and, and continues to do and has been able to do during lockdown where, you know, for me, not singing in a choir and having to do it on Zoom was annoying. But th- this, this in very, choir with no name is, 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 is a source of family for so many people. So that's who it's dedicated to, if that's okay. That's incredible. It's more than okay. Well, this, this is very, very proudly dedicated to Mary Benson and, and choir with no name. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, as a final call to action, everyone can head over to this episode for links to everything we've discussed. How else can people get more Richard Huntington? I'm really not sure that they should have any more, but, you know, everything I've ever thought about pretty much is on adliterate.com. I've been running that blog for 16 years. And to be honest, I don't understand why more people don't blog because basically it's it's like outsource. As I get older, it outsources my memory. So there's just somewhere where my memory exists. And I can look at it and sometimes go, oh, that was, that was quite good back then, wasn't I? Um, so there's that. There's me on, on Twitter, which is, you know, a blend of sometimes helpful and useful and sometimes just me being angry about the world around me. That's adliterate.com. I sort of created this... I mean, maybe we're in another time and another place, Giles, will talk about uh, coping strategies for being an introvert. One of them was create an alter ego to a certain extent. Uh, and uh, it's a bit weird being called, calling yourself ad literate. Uh, but it comes, from, it comes from basically doing that. That's how to get more of me. Or like email me, the, 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 uh, my email, personal email, my work emails on, on ad literate. Um, yeah, it's really easy. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you for giving us by random magazines. Thank you for giving us choir with no name, for sharing your singing story, for talking about outsourcing your memory. It's been um, it's been awesome. It's been absolutely awesome, Richard. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Giles. I, I, I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this, please do share it and review the pods. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. 
To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try and I try.